0: Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have access to it because you've given it to us. We pray you open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, last week, you might remember we looked at the first 14 verses in the first chapter of Colossians. Now, we focused principally around Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He was impressed at the work the gospel had done in them and went on to pray that they would continue to manifest the attributes that are associated with a life changed by the gospel. That was the the ding, if you recall. That's diligence, intimacy, endurance, and gratitude. Um, And he finished saying that uh, we need to be grateful because we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light of the Son that God loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean to have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? Well, that's what the gospel tells us. And from verses 15 through 23, Paul gives us his condensed form of his theology of salvation, his gospel presentation. And it's a pretty uh, dense kind of theologically sophisticated couple of chapters, so we'll have fun digging through that. But um, when we read through this, uh, we can often... Read through it kind of sedately because we're trying to drink in the the chapter. You know, we're trying to see what uh, what is being said. But the, the tone that Paul seems to be writing in here is like a like an explosion of of breathless praise. Um, he he leaps, heaps all these, these praising titles onto God, he's the onto Jesus because he's the image of God. He's the firstborn. All things are in him and through him and for him and hold together. And he's the head of the church and the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. And I imagine Paul begins this passage dictating to Timothy who's scribing away beside him. And then suddenly he's talking about the gospel and that's his favorite thing to talk about and works himself into a lather while Paul Timothy is scribing away like a madman giving himself carpal tunnel. The theme of this whole letter is that a church is equipped with the gospel and that's all they need to live lives pleasing to God. The gospel is everything they need. And since that gospel is the work of Christ, Paul flares up into this relentless, beat-by-beat praise of the attributes of Jesus. He starts with these cosmic, godly attributes about Jesus' role in the creation of the world, and then boils down to the small, outwardly mundane event at Calvary, the legally sanctioned lynching of the Son of God, at once the worst and best thing to ever happen in human history. And Paul is so desperate to make sure that his readers understand who Jesus is that he gives us one of his most intense bursts of adoring description here. So much so that it borders on being kind of poetic. The passage is is full of these repetitions and inclusios and other poetic devices. And the hint that Paul is, he's kind of hitting the limits of what he can just express with words without lapsing into something artistic. And this incidentally is one of the best reasons to read the Bible regularly. It has human authors describing things the way that humans do. It's God-inspired, but God used humans to write it. And if you don't read their writings and don't get a feel for who they are and how they think, then you can miss things. You can miss tonal things, emotive things, and inspired things. The Bible is not just a book full of facts about God that are so old and obscure that you need specially trained people to come up here and decipher them for you in Dodd Point sermons. We're not just trying to sort of scoop the useful facts out of this book. There is something poetic about the way Paul writes here and the way that lots of contributors to Scripture write. And if you don't come to know them by the the way they write, you might miss out on learning something that transcends the words they use as in the spirit of what they're saying. Let me try and clarify what I mean. There's an old adage, and I can't remember who said it, but the gist of it is that the deepest, most powerful things in life are inexpressible. We don't have words for them. They're between you and God, basically. This is why you can share your faith, the most transformative thing that could ever impact your life. You can share your faith with someone who does not have faith, And they will not understand. Because the relationship between you and God is actually beyond words. And you can try to describe it, but you're really only sniffing around the outsides. And the only thing that can really kickstart a person's faith is the Holy Spirit working in their heart before you get to them. That's true for the most powerful subjects in the world. And the next category, the second most powerful things in the world... Well, they're still too big to just discuss, but they can, can just be captured in, in art and, and music and drama and those sort of artistic endeavours. Which leaves us, sadly, with just the third most powerful things to talk about in our day-to-day discussion. And this sounds strange at first, but it makes sense if you give it another couple of passes. If you go to see Shakespeare's Macbeth performed on stage, you will be treated to a tragic story of a man driven to madness and murder by the promise of power. It's moving and memorable. But if you paid 80 bucks for such a show, and then one guy walked out on the stage and shouted, greed is bad. If you sacrifice your soul for power, you'll end up with neither. That's the message. And then nicked off, you'd want your money back. One is an artistic way of expressing the same thing. The other is purely a factual dump. Or if theatre's not your thing, you might have been fortunate enough at some point in your life to have personally witnessed one of the finest music compositions of all time, John Bon Jovi's Always. This song would have musically informed you that he'll be there till the stars don't shine, till the heavens burst and the words don't rhyme. He knows that when he dies you'll be on his mind and he'll love you always. But if you had a ticket to that concert and all you got was a smelly roadie wandering out on the stage saying, love's pretty good, and then wandering off, then you would have received a distilled fact without its artistic form, and you are entitled to a refund. And so on top of that, the more you read a particular author, the more you understand how they view the world, the more you listen to a particular band, the more you get a feel for what they are expressing, which is deeper than just the words involved. And likewise, the more you read Scripture, the more you recognize that God inspired particular authors for particular portions of Scripture. And the more you're able to grasp the stuff that is deeper down than just the words that are written there. So if this day, if Sunday is the only day of the week that you engage with Scripture, if the Sermon on Sunday is the only time you dive deep into God's Word, then there's a good chance you'll never quite get it. And I love sermons. I am literally dedicating my life to delivering them. But the difference between a rich relationship with God, personally engaging with his word, and hearing a preacher speak on scripture periodically is the difference between hearing your favorite song played live or having your friend read the lyrics to you. I hope everyone in this room gains new insight into Paul's letter to the Colossians through this series we are doing over these next Sundays, but you should see it live, man. It's way better live. The way that Paul loves Jesus impacts how he writes. And so with that huge disclaimer, let's wade into God's word ourselves and step through this passage and investigate all of these titles and attributions that Paul offers up beginning with verse 15. The sun is the image of the invisible God. That's an interesting way to start. What does it mean to be the image of something that is invisible? Well, for a start, it's hard to have a relationship with something that you can't perceive. This is the problem with our fallen world. Man and woman were once able to walk with God after the fall. That's simply not possible in the same way. The holy God will not be engaged in a sinful creation in the same way he's engaged in a sinless one. This is what scripture tells us from cover to cover. We began face to face with God and in the end Christ will return and all who believe in him will dwell in the presence of God and all who do not will be removed even when that muted invisible presence which is the world We presently live in passes away. And Christ's coming was the return of God to the visible world when he showed up 2,000 years ago. We often talk about this as Christ coming to live in the sinful world, and that's true in one sense. But in another, Christ was never really in the sinful world. When he was baptized, he began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, as in near to him. And wherever he went, sickness was healed, demons were scattered, sins were forgiven, and the dead were raised to life. The fallenness of the world peeled away from him wherever he went. God was visible in Christ. He had an accessible image. And to a world at that time that hadn't heard so much from a prophet of God for about 400 years, God personally showing up is just about as big a deal as one can imagine. And the second half of verse 15. The firstborn over all creation. And Paul expands this through to verse 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, in biblical parlance, heaven and earth are the two domains of the universe. You have to hear them with the, the biblical power that's meant for those terms. Heaven is not to be thought of as just sort of the pearly gates and the fluffy clouds. Heaven is the other half of the universe. It's the transcendent. Now, back in Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. He divides the heavens from the earth and the sea. Some translations will call it sky in Genesis, but the word for sky is the same as heaven. And this is often dismissed as like a a primitive notion those silly ancient people who thought that God lived in the sky. This is not a daft primitive notion. The heavenly realm is all of creation that transcends the world that we know and we can grasp. And when Paul says, in him and through him and for him, all things were created. He is blowing away any kind of notion that Jesus was just a man or a created being. He is over all that is on the earth and over all those transcendent things as well. Now, Daryl chimed in this morning, which helped me uh, add a little to, to my own exegesis here. He Expand in the morning services on some dots that should be connected. And this takes us into Greek philosophy, which I love to jump around in too. So, you know, you're treated to that. In Greek philosophy, in Aristotelian thought, in Aristotle's stuff, that is to say that the things that they were talking about at the time in their uh, high thinking circles, one of the big questions that was needed to be answered was what causes a thing? Why is a thing the way it is? What makes it there? Why is a church, for example, not a barn or an empty block of land? What is the cause of it? And the Greeks had four kinds of cause. They had the formal cause, the efficient cause, the final cause, and the material cause. And in brief, these work like this. If I were to ask you what caused this church, you could say, well, we had an architect draw up a design. So he decided the form, so the architect is the formal cause of this church. You could say, we had a team of builders get together and put the thing up. They put in the effort. So they are the uh, the efficient cause of the building. Or you could say that our previous church wasn't big enough, and so the congregation had a meeting, and we decided we were going to build a new church building. The final purpose of the church building was to fulfill the wish of the congregation that ordered it to be built. So that's your final cause. And then finally, if you were uh, being clever, you could say, well, it's a church because it's a building with Christians in it. And that's the material cause, because that's what makes up the church. That's what the matter inside it is. That's what the things in it are. That's what the material cause is. So when Paul says creation is in, by, and for Jesus, he's hitting the formal and efficient and final causes. And when he says that in him all things are held together, he's not quite saying that the universe is made of Jesus. That would be what we call pantheism. That's not something that, uh, that the Bible teaches. But he doesn't suggest that, but he does seem to suggest that all the material, everything that is made, is literally held together by Christ. It only exists because Christ is choosing to hold it together. And that's touching on that fourth cause. So the Greeks at Colossae would have understood all the vast, encompassing claims that Paul was making here. Christ is the cause of all that is, no matter how you define cause. In him, everything is held together. And, and all things, those visible things on earth, those invisible ones in heaven, beyond, amidst the rest of the universe, we cannot perceive. The thrones, the powers, the rulers and authorities, they are all in that category of things that were made and are in heaven and earth. And in the same breath that he claims the Gentile conception of the workings of the universe ultimately belong to Christ, Paul now visits the thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. These are uh, categories in um, Jewish mystical speculation about angels. There were a type of angel they called thrones, a type they called powers, and so on. And they had various functions they thought they might do, creational duties and errands run behind the scene. But Paul doesn't confirm or deny whether or not that structure matters. He doesn't sign up to any old rabbinical chart about which angels do what and where. He just says. All that doesn't matter because they all answer to Jesus and Jesus came to us personally. They do as he commands because they can do nothing else. They, like everything, are held together by him. God, through Jesus, bound everything together with his power at creation. That's what it means to be the firstborn overall of creation. Now, firstborn is sometimes a word that can trip people up. It's not firstborn in the sense of the first child born in the family. That's obviously where the word comes from. But there's more to it than that. And Anyone who has a little brother who is a foot taller than them or a big sister who is a foot shorter should understand the way that the term can have an origin that doesn't quite imply what it means. Typically, a sibling born after you is smaller than you at least they are when they are born, but they will remain your little brother even if they end up in the NBA and you end up as a jockey. Firstborn is a title given to the child who has the greatest share in the inheritance of the family, usually all of it. Today, we can split our wealth between five kids and expect them to be right after we pass along because we are in the richest time period and the richest place in the world, man. We are in the first world, baby. We generate insane amounts of wealth all the time. We are so rich and we can become so rich so quickly. I bought a cheeseburger the other day. It was a little cold. Not good enough. Threw it away. Threw away the cheeseburger. Didn't need it. Not good enough. So rich. We are super rich. But now, that's the way it is. But for a family living in the ancient world, Things were different. Folks did not just accumulate a great amount of wealth over their lifetime. You tend to build it over generations, which meant concentrating it in one place. And if you had five kids and you give them all a fifth of your property and wealth, then they would have five little properties, which wouldn't get much bigger over their lives. And their kids would have less and less and smaller and smaller properties until your great-grandson is trying to grow crops on a piece of land the size of a hula hoop. It doesn't work. What you would do is take your favoured child, usually the firstborn, and then invest everything you had in raising them the best, equipping them to handle your whole inheritance, to set them up to carry that on for another generation. And the rest of the kids you would love and support as best you can, but they're going to have to work for their brother or try and strike out into the world or something else. Because we're trying to build wealth over generations, not smash it to pieces over generations. That's what this idea of firstborn is. And that's what the firstborn is about. And Jesus is the firstborn over all of creation, not because he's the first thing made. He wasn't made. He's eternal. Indeed, he made creation. But he receives all of creation as his right, as his inheritance. Rulership of the universe created through him and for him. The Bible promises that his followers have a place in that kingdom, even positions of authority, but we can never forget who really owns the title. Jesus is the firstborn over all of creation, and he is employing us as stewards over the things that we call ours. Now in verse 18, we move on. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Right, well, we understand that Christ is the head of the church. He does his Father's will and he bids us to do the same. And when we say we are to be his hands and feet, we are also saying that he is to be the head that guides those hands and feet. But it also calls him the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. And that's a little more complicated. This word here, beginning, has two meanings and either of them can apply. It's a Greek term, arche, as in archangel or arch enemy, or arch enemy, if you prefer. And in in ancient Greek civilization, back when Athens was experimenting with democracy, they had three elected archons who split the governmental power between them. And later on, we'd come to use the same word to refer to a a government with one head of state, a king or a queen, as a monarchy, a one-archon state. So this word means two things that are meant to overlap. First, it means first, literally the beginning. In the Greek translation of Genesis, the Bible begins en-arche, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the second meaning is that archon idea, this position of power and authority. Since apparently we've established that this is learning about Ancient Greek Culture Week, I'll dive into that one a little deeper. There's a bundle of words in Greek for power. But the two that are important here are Arche and Dunamis. Arche, Archon, Monarch. Dunamis is like dynamic or dynamite. Okay? These are both power words. The difference between these two words is that dunamis power is power that's given to someone. A policeman has power to pull you over and arrest you, not supernaturally. He can't drag you off the road with, like, the force. He has power to pull you over because he has been given that power by the government. And the government has that power because we have voted in our MPs and put them in that position of power. That's bestowed power. That's dunamis. But archae has this beginning idea in it. Power, archae power is not given to you. It comes from you. You are the source of it. So when Paul says that Christ is the archae beginning, he is saying that he has power not, just because it was given to him by his father, but because he is the source of that power. He is the source of creation, the source of the church, and the source of the resurrection. And as firstborn among the dead, he is both the one who makes the promise of resurrection possible and the one who inherits the kingdom in the afterlife in the righteous reign that one day we'll truly enter ourselves. And now finishing finishing, uh, verse 18 and on. So that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Supremacy here is another one of these rulership words. To be the first among many. God made Christ the firstborn among the dead so that he might be supreme in everything. Because remember, the end of the reading last week told us that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In other words, the redemption of mankind is a reconquest. We are being taken back. When the world was made, it was made through Christ, and sinless and perfect. And when it fell, it became sinful, and it stopped being the kingdom of the sun and started being the domain of darkness, a competing enemy power. But God will not be robbed, and he rescues those who believe in him and delivers them back into his kingdom, the kingdom of those born from among the dead, those who are resurrected after death. And those who choose not to believe in him will be lost not because they didn't know or not because sin was too powerful for them to give up. They'll be lost because God has chosen to give them what they have demanded, distance from him. But once that sorting is done on the last day, there will be no more dominion of darkness, just a world reborn under the supremacy of Christ. And finally... That you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, Paul earlier said that he prayed that the Colossians would have diligence in doing good works, intimacy in knowing God's will, endurance to cling to the hope of the gospel, and gratitude for being reconciled to God. And Paul orbits these principles again in these verses. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God, that is, you lost intimacy with God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, evil behavior, literally, bad works. Same Greek words, good works, bad works. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is, we are saved. That is the thing we were supposed to be grateful for. And once again, in verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. If you continue in your faith, if you endure. This is Paul's picture of a reborn Christian. Good works, close with God, rock-solid faith, doesn't take it for granted. And out of that comes the end of verse 23. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, there's a slip-up here that we can make if we are not too careful. Paul says we are reconciled to God by Christ's death if you continue in your faith. This opens the door to one of the greatest points of contention that has ever troubled God's people. What does it mean to be saved by faith alone, and can you lose it? can you lose your salvation? So here's this conundrum. Scripture teaches us that we cannot, at all, through our own efforts, through our works, work to become good enough to earn salvation. We can't dig our way out of that hole. Now, like a guy drowning in the surf can't actually do anything to make the surf rescue helicopter come faster to rescue him. He's entirely dependent on it flying over, having a professional zip down, harness him up, and lift him out of the water. And if this fortunate individual later bragged about how he contributed to his rescue by clinging to the harness, or by declining to kick his rescuer in the stomach, you'd call him an idiot. He is not entitled to any praise for being rescued, for gripping the rope. Because that rescue is only possible because of the work of those lifesavers. And likewise, any effort we make to be good, to do godly things, does not entitle us to any credit towards our salvation. That's already paid for us. That's what we mean when we say we are saved by faith alone. But then, to have Paul say that we are saved if we continue in faith, that complicates matters. To pray that someone would endure in their faith is to pray that they would have the strength, the courage, the willpower to cling to faith when it would be easier, that is to say, less work, to let go. That's not faith alone, or it doesn't sound like it. There's a faith with a works chaser there. How do you reconcile this? This is not a small question. Christians have killed each other over this. They have burned each other alive over this. And praise God that his children have progressed to the point where our most furious disagreements tend to be resolved by us giving the other guy's book a one-star review on Amazon. For all the lamenting the church sometimes does about how lax faith has become, at least we are not murdering each other anymore. But this is not a small question. And it revolves around a concept that's called the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is the idea that once the Holy Spirit is in you, changing you, changing your life, changing the way you think, changing your mind, renewing your mind. God imbues you through that with a a kind of a supernatural capacity to endure in any circumstance so that your faith will not go away. It will not fail because it's reinforced by the power of God. It's impossible to stop believing in the gospel once you've heard it because the Holy Spirit is in you. Now, there are some Christians who don't believe in this perseverance and those that do, because there are passages like the one that we just read that seems to imply it's possible to know the gospel and then slide away from it. And then there are passages like John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that really sounds like perseverance. So if you're a perseverance guy, you need to explain 1 Colossians 23, if you are not a perseverance guy, you have to explain John 10, 28. This is a non-trivial question. If you answer it quickly, then someone who has thought more about it will give you a better explanation. They'll knock you around and be beaten up by this question every time it comes up. You must answer it to your conscience's satisfaction, consulting the people you trust with Scripture, searching the Bible yourself. Now, I believe in perseverance of the saints. I do not think it is possible for someone who is genuinely saved to fall away from God's grace. But I believe that God's favorite method of working in the world is through the actions of his people. I think that the mechanism the Holy Spirit uses to affect this eternal security is encouragement from fellow believers, the sense of purpose and reinforcement that church community provides, and good teaching. I think that's mostly how God chooses to do it. This means That because we don't get to see the universe from God's point of view all time at once, we're forced to act in this world as if people could fall away. Because we can't tell what's going to be revealed later. In other words, we don't have a license to sit back and say, well, if they're saved, they're saved. God will sort them out in the end. Jesus is the head. His church is the body, his feet and his hands. And if no one will ever be snatched out of his hands, then we are the ones that are supposed to be doing the gripping. That's my resolution for the question. Wrestle with it yourself, I encourage you. Let me know what you come up with. I'd love to hear it. But what do we take away from this passage? It's covered a lot of ground. It's touched on some contentious topics and revisited previous verses. But Paul's thrust here... I think is inescapable. It is the gospel that changes lives, that gives hope, which offers eternal life, that makes holy servants out of damned rebels. Why does Paul repeat this? Because this is not a letter to a church that needs to be saved. They're already saved. Why is Paul presenting the gospel to a saved church? What's the point? There's only one conclusion. that The gospel is not just the rescue line thrown down from the helicopter. It's the warm sand to which you are being delivered once you are rescued. It is the rescuer's breath in your lungs that drives the seawater out of your chest and allows you to breathe again. It doesn't stop working on you once you are saved. It is the frame of your reborn life. It's not just the first song, it's the whole album. Sure, the big hits are what drew you in, but ten years later... You will hear one of the tracks that you skipped over a thousand times before and wonder how you ever missed it the first thousand times around. The gospel is not just the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is Genesis through Revelation. Because Jesus is the first and the last. The firstborn over all of creation and the firstborn over the resurrected kingdom. Exploring the gospel and engaging with God's word grows you. As you breathe it deeper, the parts that once didn't make sense to you flash into life and connect more of it and make more sense. It connects more of the gospel together and more of you to Christ. Every one of us knows that in the core of the person we are, we know that we are not the person we are meant to be. People deal with this in different ways. They might pinball around through new fads or lifestyles, or they might double down on some particular behavior and become obnoxious and aggressive at any criticism. But we all know that we are not who we were meant to be. And it is engagement with the gospel that allows you to really actually address that knowledge. It reveals more of who you are meant to be and it empowers you to become that person. Not just to know the fact of the gospel, the correct statement that Jesus is the Son of God who saved us by his death on the cross, but to know it personally through relationship with him, to know it ever deeper, the truth of the story of God stepping into, into history that he created to be with us. If you are a passionate follower of Jesus, it means you must develop a passion to follow him. And as much as I love preaching, that means you can't just take my word for it. It means you need to do your own digging. Read the hard parts of your Bible. If you encounter a question that you can't answer, keep asking it. Read a book on the topic or email one of the six pastors you have at your disposal. Just don't take my word for it. God's word is the gospel and the gospel is for you. Let's pray together. Father God, we worship your son by and through and for whom you created the heavens and the earth. He is the promise of our resurrected future and the head of our church today. Help us to be a body worthy of him to do works that glorify you as we draw closer to you in the intimacy purchased for us by his blood. Give us your strength to cling to the gospel and to have a heart that never takes what you have given for granted. And with that gratitude, Lord, inspire us to treasure your gospel and the word through which you proclaim it. May it act on us, and make us into the people of your design. We know that every day you have more grace for us and more wonders to show us through your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Help us, Lord, to never stop looking for those wonders in the place where we first found them, your son's sacrifice on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.